All right, First Thessalonians chapter four. Again, Desiree, we are praying for you. I'm sure she's all drugged up, so this will be the best message she's ever heard me preach right now. We're going to start administering that when people come in. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter four. We're going to start there in verse number 1, down through verse number 8. Furthermore, then when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So he's addressing an issue that he dealt with when he was there in Thessalonica when he started the church. He said, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you know that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service tonight. Lord, I pray that it would be help to us, it would draw us closer to you. Again, may your word have that free course. May it challenge us. May we see the truth that is here. And again, may it help us to draw closer to you. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior, please, I pray for that, that conviction that perhaps even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, we love you and I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, as we finished up chapter 3, I, I made the statement, I said, pretty much your first three chapters are almost introductory into this epistle. Paul is thrilled with this church. In spite of uh, very difficult persecution, the hardships that, that they were facing, he was under to the point of literally physical pain and wondering how the church was doing. Again, he finally, when he, he finally sends uh, Timothy to go check on the work, and, and Timothy catches up to him. Of course, he leaves Berea, heads down, the, down to Athens, and he goes to Corinth. Timothy catches up with him in Corinth and gives the, uh, the report that Paul, that they're faithful, they weren't believing the lies that were told about you, that they're doing what's right, and Paul is just thrilled with it over their faithfulness. And now he's getting into really the practical part of the letter, what he's driving at in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And he's starting off, because it's so important, with something that he taught them immediately. And that was dealing with the issue of purity, especially, well, in particular, sexual purity is what he's dealing with. We certainly live in a culture here in the United States that is obsessed with sex. Sexual sin is everywhere. In our day, premarital sex, it's common, it's expected. Um, or, or even sex outside of marriage, not your spouse. Pornography is more available than any other time in the history of the world. Homosexuality is now literally a social norm. The sexual revolution that began in the 1950s gained, gained a lot of speed in the 1960s has completely reshaped our culture. Our culture is now one that is obsessed with pleasure and self-gratification. 
One where you get to determine your own morals based on what and what works for you. There is nowhere this is more evident in our culture than our culture's approach to sex. Our culture wants no boundaries in this regard, no lines. Each person gets to decide what they want and that's it. Let me quote from a book. This book is called The AIDS Epidemic, written by two medical doctors. One is, last name is Wood, the other is Dietrich. I'm going to quote just from one paragraph in here. He said this. He said he was, he was discussing how it's interesting his take, a medical doctor, on what's happened to our nation in regards to this obsession with sex. And look how he, look how he mentions this. He said, a society spends... The most time and energy, once the basic necessities of life are satisfied, on what it deems most important. Okay, so he's saying, if a, cult, if, a, if a culture society gets to a place to where the basic needs are met, all right, they don't have to concentrate on that, and, and, and then it's going to spend the most time and money on what it deems most important. So he goes on. He says, in ancient Hebrew and even American Puritan writings, one can hardly read a single paragraph without encountering a reference to God Almighty. Then he goes on. What items have replaced God in our communications today? Only sex, money, and self-love uh, satisfy the time and energy requirements for what is sacred in our culture. These are the gods of the new age. He's exactly right. So he's saying what you determine what, what the culture's focus is. He said, all right, what do they spend their money and their time on? He said, you have your answer. And we certainly see what that is in our culture. It's very true. Traditional Christian biblical values and morals have been overthrown. They've bought into this, this with the revolution that's taking place, this new theology, you will. This sexual immorality that is shame has been removed from sexual sins. This is one of the biggest problems. This is one of the devil's biggest tools when he finally was able to get shame removed from sexual sins. Remember, I've dealt with this before. The devil's great at using our emotions inappropriately. But every emotion we have is God-given and God has a person for it, including shame. And when shame is removed, you can see some of the problems that arise. If the devil was going to be successful in any culture with sexual sins, he knows shame has to be removed. There is no more shame in it. There's no more shame in premarital sex. There's no more shame in homosexuality. There's no more shame in taking another man's wife. There's no more shame in looking at pornography. And this is certainly destroying our culture and it's destroying our families. I grew up in a broken home that was broken as a result of sexual immorality. I, I can think of friends I have, relatives, I can think of, of the best man at my wedding. What ruined his marriage was, was adultery. I can think of one of my very best friends at my very first assignment um, in New Mexico. We were very close in church together. What destroyed his marriage was sexual immorality. Multitude. The list just goes on and on and on. And this text certainly deals with the issue of sexual purity. The problem facing a culture that's dealing with a, a, a crazy amount of sexual immorality. The, the truth is, in Thessalonica, they have this problem. And to be honest, it's worse than even our culture. The Greek culture at this time was incredibly wicked and filled with sexual sins, just like ours. But it even went to a further degree. Prostitution was legal. The profits they would make from brothels, that's what they would use 
to build their temples, which they put more prostitution into. They made prostitution even a form of worship. It was almost looked at as, as an excuse. It, was just, it became what the society was living for. Even getting to believe that the relationships they'd have with the prostitutes was somehow a connection with deity. There was wide approval for all types of sexual behavior, just like we see in our culture. A biblical standard was not known. So Paul has to deal with this when he's planting churches in these other cultures. This is a major issue he has to address. And so as he's getting into the practical matter, he goes right to that immediately. And he said, I've already addressed this when I was there, but I'm bringing it up again. Now, maybe Timothy, when Timothy came back and said, listen, I would hit that again. I mean, you can just think in their mind what they were saved out of. What their culture is, it's everywhere. They have to deal even with their own memories in that regard. And so Paul is coming back and stressing the importance of purity. He's dealing with this very destructive sin. He puts this in context in verse 1 in dealing with our walk with God. He says in verse 1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. Here's how he's introducing it. That as you received of us, how you ought to walk and to please God so that you would abound more and more. So he's saying, listen, what I'm addressing to you now is, is, is how you're to live, how you're to walk, how you can actually please God. And the fact is, obviously, pleasing God should be the very motive for the Christian. Pleasing God means more, by the way, than just simply doing God's will. That's certainly part of it, but it's more than just doing God's will. It's how you do God's will. Ask Jonah. We went through the book of Jonah. Remember you get in the last chapter of Jonah? Did Jonah do God's will in chapter 3? Yes. Was God pleased with him? No. The problem was how he accomplished God's will. The Lord had an issue with it, and he should have. So Paul is addressing here how we are to please God with our life and our walk. And he goes right into sexual sins. The fact is, he knows. He has to start here. This is critical. That sin is, per, is pervasive. It's, it's all over the culture. He knows that they're going to battle it. And he knows, well, I've got to get this in order. If they're going to grow, this has to happen. And so, what he starts off first, before he goes to sort of new issues that he never got to, he goes to one of the issues he dealt with there, and that was sexual purity. He knows they're not going to be able to please God with a life that is controlled by sex. I'm going to break this down. Uh, none of these will take a while. There's several here. If you want to write them down, you can. I'll go through them a little bit quickly. He's going to start off with a commitment to purity. Secondly, to control your person. Thirdly, a call to a new purpose. This is all these are going to, I'm going to use all these to support how in a wicked culture like we're in, we can maintain a level of sexual purity. A commitment to pause. Now that one, you might want to put a parenthesis there. Better wording for it is no trespassing. We're going to see this text then gets into certain punishment. And lastly, this is Christ's pronouncement. It's God's command. So let's dive into this tonight. First of all, verses 2 and 3, he says this. For you know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus, referring to what he preached when he was there. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification 
that you should abstain from fornication. So he starts off with saying, listen, you've got to abstain from this. You've got to commit to this. You've got to commit to purity. There are several things given to us in Scripture that we know are the will of God. People say they struggle with the will of God. Here's a little list of them that I wrote. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that all men be saved. Romans 12 deals with God's will in that we are to be a living sacrifice. That's God's will for our life. In Ephesians 5, the will of the Lord is that we are filled with the Spirit of God. In 1 Peter, God's will is that we submit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God uh, in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then here. Here's the other one that the Bible directly tells us the will of God. That we should abstain from fornication given our life over to sanctification. So we know it is God's will that all of us abstain from fornication. Now let's define this. People like today like to redefine The first time I encountered this on a, on a fairly serious level was a very close relative. And the close relative I was witnessing to, and, and, and um, they, they were big in style, and this was a hang-up for them. They really had, just like I had laid out in our culture, they really believed there was really no problem with any of the sexual immorality taking place. And one day, he called me up and said, guess what I did? He was all happy. He said, I went by and talked to a preacher about this. And, and he gave me a definition of fornication that I had never heard before. And I'm like, well, what did he give you? Chris. It was, it was, it was, I said, what he told you was a lie. I said, that's not the definition of the word. I said, I don't, I don't know what church you went to or who you were talking to, but I'm telling you, he's telling you a lie. That's not what that word means. I said, you like it because you think, by his definition, that gives you freedom in your sexual sins. It doesn't. But people love to redefine terms to fit what they want to believe. This is one of those terms. <clears throat> so what does the word mean? It is a broad term used in Scripture encompassing many sexual sins. Really, any illicit sexual activity, it encompasses. When you look at the word, it's, it's, it's actually the word pornea in Greek, from which we even get our word pornography. It includes harlotry, incest, premarital sex, adultery, on and on and on. You name it, it basically was the word that covered illicit sexual behavior. That's what it did. <clears throat> and we are commanded to abstain from it. Again, Paul is dealing with converts that are living in an incredibly wicked culture. This, this would be an issue they are going to have to deal with on a daily basis. The temptation would be great. The fact is, the marriage bed is a gift given by God. It's something God's given that is, that is great and it's, it's tremendous. But our culture sees it. It, it has no longer sees it as something special by God to strengthen and develop a relationship. Our culture sees it more as just a biological act. Just like eating food, or as in Corinthians, food is for the body and the body is for food. They, they see that as, as, as the sexual relationship. That's not true at all. It's not, this is not just simply something that's a biological act. It's something from God for the marriage union. It's something that's to be special. Almost as a form of entertainment. It's, it loses its value how special it is to be. 
They lost how God has designed this. They've turned it into something that doesn't strengthen relationships, but it's destroying relationships. Letting people feel betrayed, used, ugly, shameful. I'm going to quote from a commentator on this. He said this, The influence of Charles Darwin and Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud and, and Nietzsche, and in modern times, Margaret Sanger, who is the founder of Planned Parenthood, Master and Johnson, Hugh Hefner, have managed to produce Pleasure-mad, anti-family, homosexual, pornographic, perverted society. He nailed it. That's what he did. That's exactly right. Paul tells him, you have to abstain from this. You have to give yourself over to sanctification. So, so what does that mean? Is that something we can do? Well, there, there's two types. I'll cover that very quickly. We're, we have a positional sanctification. That happens at the very moment you get saved. Uh, you're set apart, you know, there's, there's much that go with that, but that's not what this word here is dealing with. We have what's referred to in different ways as either progressive or practical sanctification, and that's what he's dealing with here. This deals with your everyday walk. And Paul says, listen, this is what you have to give yourself to, the sanctification. It, it, the word means to be set apart, to be holy. And listen, young people, listen to this. This is what you want to give yourself to. Don't fall prey to the lies of this culture. You save yourself for marriage. That very first kiss you have should come at that moment the preacher says, you may now kiss the bride. And besides, for the rest of us, it's very entertaining watching when that takes place. I'll never, I, can't even, I, I can't mention this daughter's name because I'm not allowed to anymore. So I won't mention her name. But I still remember when I uh, uh, went, went for that first kiss and she had no clue what to do. And just backing up and backing up. <laughs> it was entertaining. And so then the question is, when you are, this is how practical the Word of God is. When we, you live in a culture that is so obsessed with it, how do we do that? How do we do that? And we have something that we do, even though that culture was worse than I do believe that. But we have something that culture did not have to deal with, and that is the easy access of pornography. Look at verse 4. Now he gets into the how-to. Very practical for the rest, four through eight. He doesn't leave him. He just doesn't say it. He shows him how to do this. No, you can notice the punctuation, the colon. I'm, I'm going to show you how you're going to do this. Verse four, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. He starts off there in verse four. This is rather I can tell, control your person. He is dealing with self-control. Now, some commentators, if you look this up, and they're just plain wrong. I mean, it, it, rarely do I say that, but they are. I read a couple, I'm like, oh my goodness. They say, this is talking about your wife. They refer to 1 Peter 3, 7, which refers to your wife as your vessel, the weaker vessel. And they say, controlling your wife has nothing to do with sexual purity. It does not. That's not what it's saying here. That, that's, not, that's not it at all. Remember, you acquire a wife. You possess a body. Okay? That's not what he's dealing with. He is dealing with the idea of you learning to self-control and discipline in your life. That's what it's talking about. You have to use a measure of self-control 
It's essential. Without this, without a measure of discipline, you will always, always struggle spiritually in your life. Look over in Romans chapter 6. He gets very practical in some of these chapters in dealing with the issue of self-control. He says that in verse 12. Let's just go to verse 12 for time's sake here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Let not sin. He's, he's telling you, let not sin therefore. Don't let it have that control over you. Don't, let, don't allow sexual sins to have control over you that you should obey it in the lust thereof. But there is a battle that takes place. Paul gets into I mean, I mean, he talks about that. You get down to verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For that I would not, that I do not. For what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do, but sin that dwells in me. I find in the law that when I do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's describing the battle. But he gets to the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he, he, remember, we put the chapters in. As he goes into chapter 8, he gets into the importance of the Spirit of God in this battle. As does, as does Paul in 1 Thessalonians, what we're going to see here in, in, our, in chapter 4. Look over in Galatians. Let's see why he does that. Look in Galatians chapter 5. You've got to start off with that commitment to purity. Then you've got to learn how to control your person to get some self-control. And now what I'm trying to do is elaborate to try and help along that line of the self-control. He says, look at this, uh, verse 16. This is why God's Holy Spirit is so important. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And then he goes on to the work and fl- works of the flesh. It starts off with, with a series of sexual immorality. The key is the Spirit of God in your life. He is the key. Now, in order for this to, to, to maximize it, listen to me, the Bible is very practical. You think of verse like Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what's interesting about that? When you do a comparison with that between Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, both, Ephesians 5 deals with being filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3 deals with let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But then they both follow up with basically the same thing. Speaking to yourself, psalms, hymns, and etc. There's a connection there between the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly and being filled with the Spirit of God. You can't separate one from the other. If God's Spirit, which the very you put your faith in Christ, indwelled you, seals you unto the day of redemption, has all the power you need to be successful in your walk, even in a wicked and vile culture. But if it's going to have, if it's going to maximize where it's actually a benefit, then know it has to dwell in you richly. 
the Word of God. The question is, how does it dwell in you? And how much is actually there? But when you put those together, that's where the power comes from. That's, that's where you have the ability to exhibit some self-control. It's a matter of changing your thinking to gain control. To allow God's truth to begin to permeate your mind. Then along with that, we can see in Scripture, with self-control, don't, make provision, don't put yourself in position where, where you think you're strong enough because you're not. Proverbs 2, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7. Notice basically telling you, don't put yourself in that position because you're not strong enough. That's what it's doing. Don't say, well, okay, I, I, I've, I've, I've been walking in the Spirit. I've, I've been dwelling. God's Word has been dwelling me richly. That doesn't mean you walk into a hornet's nest and, don't, and think you won't get stung. Don't make provision for your flesh. Stay away from whatever plays with those sexual emotions that you have that's not right. But he doesn't finish. He gives more help back in 1 Thessalonians. He says, all right, this is how you're going to do it. You've got to commit to this. Because again, their culture is wicked. Don't forget that. You've got to commit to it. Possess your vessel. Control yourself. But he gives more help. I'm going to put 5 and 7 together. I'll come back to verse 6. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. Verse 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Let me combine these two. This is, I've entitled this, you have to understand, as you're going through this process, all right, I'll get to this, i got to self-control. Understand, when you got saved, you were called to a new purpose. Your whole purpose in life should have changed immediately. Nowadays, it seems as if, it really is, it's just, it's just mind-boggling how churches want to see how much like the world they can actually be. We should be acting like, what he's saying is there in, in, in verse 5, don't act like a lost person. You're saved. You're not to act like the, You're not to act like the pagans. You should be different. You have a brand new purpose. He said, God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He's telling us, remember this, the purpose of your life changed. He's telling this rampant, uncontrolled desire and passion for sexual gratification that we see in the lost should not be controlling your life. We need to be different. Even though this world has no boundaries here, we do. We are called to a new purpose. We are called to live for God and not self. Our life is no longer about self-gratification. Our life is about God. Remember this. God sees all men, all men on earth, basically one of two ways. Let's simplify this. He either sees all in Adam or all in Christ. Two groups. If you're an Adam, you're controlled by the fall. We obey our sinful nature. Our ruined sin nature. If you're in Christ, those who are redeemed, you're controlled by God's call. 
Here we obey the Spirit of the Lord and we follow our redeemed nature instead of the ruined one. That ruined one will lead you nothing to sin, selfishness, look out for yourself. Our redeemed nature leads us towards sanctification, to a life that can glorify the Creator. So you have a new purpose. And it is about glorifying God. So he said, he, he calls him back to that. He said, remember that. Now, let's go on to number four here. I entitled this one, I, I, hopefully I can explain it, why I worded it that way. Commit to pause or no trespassing. Verse six, the first part. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Now, the context is still sexual sin. You're going to see that laid out when we give the definition of these words. As even seven, he goes back to uncleanness. He's still dealing with the same sin. He says, do not go beyond and defraud your brother. This is saying, basically, don't go over the line. Let me give you the definition of these words. That no man go beyond. The word means to make to go over. Whether that's a wall, a mount, overpass. To go too far. Uh, to cheat, to defraud. So it literally means to step over. He's saying don't step over, don't cross that line. So basically, God has written no trespassing over every man and woman who is not their wife or husband. No trespassing. He says, remember this. He said, when it comes to this, there's no trespassing. Don't go there. Don't cross that line. Defraud means to overreach, oppress, to means to have more than another, to have, then to have an advantage, and then to take advantage of anyone, to circumvent, defraud, cheat. So God, we know, has put down lines. He's telling you here, don't cross them. It means don't take advantage of someone else for your own fulfillment. Don't use someone. And what are the lines that he's dealing with? He's dealing with lines of sexual purity. Listen, ladies, if some guy says he loves you, but he's trying to use you to fulfill his own desires, he's simply robbing you and stealing what is not his. That's what's taking place. It is taking what is not yours. And then in B, he goes to certain punishment. He says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because the Lord, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we, all, as we have forewarned you and testified. Here he goes on to make it very clear. Another motive here of why to avoid this. He says, listen, there's certain punishment. See, not only has God written no trespassing, you know what else he put on that sign? Violators will be prosecuted. That's what he's saying. Violators will be prosecuted. Isn't that what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 tells us? Look at Hebrews 13 4 if you're not familiar with it. Look over there at it. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. It's something God given. It's not just for children. It's something God has given to strengthen the relation. There's so much more to it than the, even the, the wrong philosophy that's taught in a lot of Christian circles that it's just for children. That's complete nonsense. But look at the rest of this. 
But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Certain punishment. God doesn't take it lightly. He understands the ramifications. So, whenever there's ramifications of such, the punishment is going to fit that. It's usually severe. It can take many different forms that we see throughout, throughout Scripture, whatever the case might be. Whether it's, whether it's incredible guilt, incredible shame that haunts the transgressor over and over and over and over again. As that's the weight and the punishment that God is putting down. It could take even the form, even to STDs of our day. To death even, that God, well, God will judge it. But make no mistake, this is something that God will judge. And he's telling him, so listen, don't forget this. Now that you're saved and you're his, listen, judgment comes with this one. And then lastly, I'll finish up here with verse number eight. Christ's pronouncement. In other words, Paul's telling him here, this isn't my command. This is God's. He says... He, therefore, that despises, that's rejecting, that word means reject. He that despises, rejecting this, rejecteth not man. Despises not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. He said, if you have rebellion towards this and you just think, well, I, I, you can define your own terms and do what you want to do with this. He says, I got news for you. you, you you're, you're not despising me. You're not rejecting me. You, you are despising God. You are rejecting the command of God. This is from God. So you better be careful when you choose to ignore this and refuse it. You're rejecting God's word when you turn against this. And Paul is clear. It is no light thing to despise the teachings and commands of Almighty God. You are setting aside what the Creator Himself has given us to live by, what He's required. So Paul tells him, listen, he goes, he reminds him, remember, these are, these are new converts. This is all brand new to them. They did not come up in a Christian culture. And he's reminding him, listen, he says, don't forget this. They had so many crazy religions of their day. So many gods were everywhere. He said, don't forget this. What I am telling you in this regard, it's just not me. If you turn against this, you're not, you're not despising me. You're not turning from me. You're rejecting God. It's his word. So he comes through here trying to give him as much help as he can. He knows they're facing this. And I do believe that Timothy probably mentioned, listen, you, you need to stress this again. I think it's a battle there. You need to stress it. I mean, it's Thessalonica. I mean, it was true in any of the cities of that day. This is the capital there in Macedonia. Uh, Paul knows what they're facing. The devil is just not going to attack through that outward persecution. But if, if he can, in any avenue he has... And so Paul, before going on to some new teaching for him, he says, listen, I, I, I want you to remember one thing I taught you when I was there. Stay pure. Commit to it. Learn some self-control. Possess your own body. You have the ability to do that through God's Holy Spirit, which indwells you, which is given in, he mentions that in verse 8, and, and God's Word, which needs to dwell in you richly. He says, understand, you, you're God's now. You don't act like the pagan. You don't act like the lost now. You're his. Determined not to cross that line. No trespassing. Say, I can't do this. Because no, there's certain punishment that's coming with it. 
And if you choose to reject this, you're not rejecting my word. You're rejecting God's. With heads bowed and eyes closed. The young people and our singles, boy, it's something to commit to. To say, you know what, I will... I am saving myself till marriage. The very first time that I, that I will uh, allow myself to even, even to, to kiss that other person will be that day that I say I do. It's something special given by God. It's something the devil has come and just destroyed and ruined how special it is. Now, if there's anyone here, this, of course, was certainly for our church, but if there's anyone here that is, maybe you've been struggling with this thing of salvation. In other words, you're not even certain if you died, you'd go to heaven, and this has been bothering you. You say, Pastor, please, I need you to pray for me. I don't know for certain that if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I don't know that. Please pray for me. If that's you, would just raise your hand and let me see it. Just some small children is all I'm seeing. All right, Christian, if the Lord worked on your heart, you need to come and pray, or you have another need to come and pray about. Come and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I pray that you bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's turn to page 174, and if you need to come and pray, you can.